This is 105.9 The Region, where parents talk and explore practical, proactive, and evidence-based solutions. This is Where Parents Talk with Leanne Castellino. Thank you for making us part of your day. I'm Leanne Castellino. Welcome to Where Parents Talk here on 105.9 The Region. Raising kids today is uniquely challenging. Each week, we strive to offer a fresh perspective on parenting through science, lived experience, and the expertise of our guests who are also parents. On today's show, social-emotional learning is a term commonly known and practiced by teachers and educators. It is an approach that is the basis for programs in many schools, and its benefits for students are rooted in scientific evidence. Joining us to discuss this topic today is an adjunct professor at the University of Michigan Medical School and a couples and family therapist. Dr. Erica Bocknick is also a practicing psychotherapist, a researcher, and a mother of three. She joins us today from Franklin, Michigan. Welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Social workers and educators are most likely aware of the term social-emotional learning, but parents perhaps less so. Dr. Bocknick, could you start by defining what social-emotional learning is? So I think very fundamentally, social-emotional learning is what it sounds like. It's an opportunity for children to learn about their feelings, about relationships, about ways of communicating with others, alongside the other important subjects that they're learning in school. From a parenting perspective, then what does a parent need to know about social-emotional learning and how to teach it, practice it, foster it within the household? So here's where this becomes, I think, a conversation that is ongoing out in the world. Social emotional learning is in many ways compared to at least the other subjects that kids learn in school, math and science and reading, social emotional learning is relatively new. And it's continuing to evolve in terms of what actually is getting taught, what actually kids are practicing and what we're learning as we go about best practices. But what I can say that I think would be useful to those listening out there and who want this information is that in school, social workers and teachers may be likely to focus on aspects of feelings and relationships that are very relevant in the school environment. They're going to talk to kids about peer conflict, peer relationships, sharing, caring, kindness, as well as being able to use emotion vocabulary words, being able to identify I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm excited, and then what to do if those feelings become so big, they inhibit the social skills that we expect kids to have in the classroom. What parents can know about that is they can support their kids and what they're learning at school and the way those skills help children in the school setting. And then separately, they can do some thinking for their households about what emotions and social relationships mean for the family and the community. Can you give us some examples of the how in terms of how parents do that? Exactly what you just described, but the actual tools that they need to have, explore, uh, to be able to, to teach that to their children. I want to answer this in two ways. I want to tell you that what's a really popular practice 
is for parents to learn how in their home to use emotion vocabulary, be able to identify their own feelings, talk to their kids about, about their feelings, role model good behavioral coping strategies that help you manage the either amount, you know, amount that you feel or the context in which you're having that feeling and how it might be inhibiting your interaction. So for example, a lot where this comes up a lot at home is when children are feeling disappointed. I've got one just outside the door who's feeling a little bit disappointed right now. And parents can talk with their kids about what they might be feeling, disappointed, angry, frustrated. And also in our family, when we feel that way, we talk it out, we get a hug, but also we focus on the task at hand. How can we do that? Now that's an example. What parents can also do in low stakes moments is talk about that process for themselves. Be willing to narrate their own internal states and talk about how they're actively coping. What I want to add to this is a couple of things. One is that we've gotten really hyper-focused on the management of negative emotion states because we don't want our kids or ourselves to feel flooded with things like anger and frustration. But emotion regulation isn't just suppressing negative emotions that may feel too big for the environment that you're in. It's more broadly actually learning how to use emotions as information. If you feel something, it's relevant in some way to an experience that you're having. So being able to open up the conversation with your kids and talk about the whys, what the environment, what you're feeling right now, what that's telling you about your experience can be really powerful. And it's great to start that in low stakes moments when you're not running out the door, when you're not yourself trying to manage a, a moment of conflict, but when you're around the dinner table or when you're sort of all in the environment together, it's a great time for parents to open up conversational space. Some parents might listen to that and say, you know what, I grew up in a very different time. I was raised in a very different way. We were taught to be stoic. The culture I come from was very different from this. So emotions and sharing of them were things that we just didn't do in our family. Now I'm being asked to, uh, you know, share my emotions with my children in order to help them manage theirs. What would you say to that parent? I love this question. And, and this is actually where I feel like a lot of SEL models are falling down on the gym. The, the thing is that emotions are only one kind of internal state. And you heard me use that language a moment ago. Feelings are one internal state. And the words that we assign to them, like sad, angry, excited, it's a vernacular we've all agreed on but it doesn't even necessarily describe the internal feeling you're having. It's just a way to communicate. There are some feelings that don't have a name. In my family, we say it's like a Bachnik feeling to be excited and scared all at the same time, because that's how we deal with novelty is that that gets like kind of smushed together. And we just know that that's the feeling. Other internal states include thoughts, beliefs, knowledge, expectations, physical sensations that you can identify, motivations. These are all things that fit into all families, all cultural groups that aren't necessarily like I'm feeling scared right now. 
To say that you want something is an internal state. So simply getting into the habit with your kids of revealing internal states at your comfort level is a really important way just to open up the space about feeling states. You don't even have to drive the conversation towards feelings words. I don't think that's the most important thing. Again, because it's only kind of, it's one kind of internal state. And sometimes people trample on the other ones by trying to force a feelings word in there. If your four-year-old wants the purple cookie and not the blue cookie, some parents are really, it's their instinct to be like, I know you're sad that you can't have the cookie that you want, but like maybe your four-year-old's not sad. Wanting something is a legitimate internal state. And so just to be able to say, you want that, and I get it, I want things. Here's something I really wanted today. That's the same thing as really connecting and sharing on, on kind of that, you know, transparent internal state level. This is Where Parents Talk here on 105.9 The Region. I'm Leanne Castellino in conversation with Dr. Erica Bachnick. We are discussing social-emotional learning through a parenting lens. Let's say that this is all new information to you as a parent, and you now have a tween, uh, a teen, uh, you know, maybe even a young adult, and you're listening to this thinking, you know what, it's high time. I'm convinced I'm going to start really looking at my parenting style through a social emotional lens more and more. What would be an appropriate starting point for that parent? The best starting point, no matter what stage you're at, newborn, 11-year-old, 24-year-old, emerging adulthood as a whole parenting stage, no matter what, the best starting point is a relationship. Think about who you like to reveal your internal states to. Who do you organically, not because someone has called you and been like, you know, how are you feeling about X or Y or Z, but who do you organically think, I'm going to call up my best friend, my partner, I, I just want to tell them how excited I am about this thing that happened. You want to be that person to your child. And it can begin as early as infancy, starting to match and exchange internal states, paying attention to emotion cues, for example, if your child looks like they're available to you to have a conversation, talk to them about literally anything. Even if it's a four minute conversation about the latest video game, a song on the radio when you're in the car, these are all ports of entry to start opening up conversational spaces and become the kind of partner for you, who your child is gonna to wanna to share internal state language with. Dr. Bachnick, can you tell us what you would say to a parent who perhaps thinks that their child isn't mature enough, maybe too anxious, etc., to actually be able to handle having that parent share their emotions on a regular and consistent basis with that child? I think, again, it's about picking a starting point that is organic, that feels like a good fit. It may be a maturity issue. Or it may be a readiness issue, it may be a trust issue, and it simply may be wrong place, wrong time. You need room to grow. Oftentimes, we think about parenting as though it's a professional role, and you're there to implement a protocol. And if something's not working, either there's something wrong with the object that you're 
implementing the protocol on your child, or there's something wrong with you as the worker bee, you're not doing it right. And I hope when I describe that, folks can sort of hear, huh, yeah, that doesn't exactly sound like how this is supposed to go. Parents and children are in a relationship, and we forget that because we are so worried about getting it right. But the parent-child relationship is the basis for all of human survival and adaptation and innovation. The fact that we nurture babies and children and mentor them is the reason, the very reason we have thrived all these years and we didn't used to have books and Instagram influencers and all these ways that we now have this kind of like curriculum, it seems like for parenting. Wherever you are in your parenting journey, However you come away from this conversation and think, I am really interested in how my child feels about the world, how their beliefs are getting shaped, what they're motivated to grow towards. I am really interested to know, what do they think of their relationships? I'm looking at my baby and I am really curious, what will they, what kinds of people will they be drawn to? The more you start to do that kind of mentalizing the more you're going to find that it's actually very natural to start conversations. And whenever I feel awkward or stuck, because there are some things that I just can't relate to when it comes to my kids. I'm, my oldest is a 12-year-old boy, and despite having a pretty high EQ, sometimes he tells jokes I don't get. And in those moments, I just say what's true. I don't get it. But thank you for sharing it with me. And also, you know, maybe daddy will get the joke if you tell it to him later. I just work through it, right? Like we're just two humans in a relationship. It's time for a short break. Our conversation about social emotional learning with Dr. Erica Bachnick, therapist, university professor, and mother, will continue when Where Parents Talk returns after the break. Stay with us. Want to learn more about the show? Email info at whereparentstalk.com. Stick around. Leanne Castellino and Where Parents Talk will be right back on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to Where Parents Talk. Listen live at 1059theregion.com. Here's Leanne Castellino. Welcome back. You are listening to Where Parents Talk here on 105.9 The Region. I'm Leanne Castellino, and we are talking with Dr. Erica Bachnick, university professor, psychotherapist, and mother of three children under the age of 12. We're talking about social-emotional learning as it concerns parents. Dr. Bachnick, could you illustrate for parents listening or watching this interview as to what tools social-emotional learning equips a child with, both for today and into the future? So the goal of social emotional learning is that we hope children will learn how to identify what they feel inside, have an awareness of it so that they can use that emotional information wisely before the emotion starts to become detached from the from the child's ability to either manage the feeling itself or manage the the stimulus, the trigger for the feeling. And we hope that children will learn skills to help them adapt to relationships of all kind across all contexts. We are raising change makers. That's the hope. 
Because as humans evolve, we need the next generation to grab the baton. And we believe the way of the future is to ha- is to be the kind of person who can understand how people feel, who can understand how they feel, and be able to use that information in relationships and cooperation to innovate, to grow, to evolve this world further. What I do think may be getting lost at school, and this is where the family and community really has to step in, is that these relationship skills and emotion regulation skills can be taught theoretically, and they can be practiced a bit in the school environment, but you get a lot of bang for your buck practicing them at home with the people who know you best and in the relationships that are going to be the relationships of your lives, the centered relationships. And the family and community is the best place for cultural influences to be discussed in terms of how emotions get expressed, how emotions and positionality interact, how different people in different community groups might feel about what we discuss and how we think about the role of emotions in our lives. That is something that families and communities do well and should be really the leaders in when we think about social emotional learning. What kinds of trends are you seeing in your practice as it relates specifically to social emotional learning? And what concerns you, if anything, about those trends? There's two things that I'm seeing that I'm concerned about. One is that children have a growing um, list of emotion vocabulary words. When somebody asks, asks them to name how they feel about something, an experience they've had or something that's about to happen, oh, you have a new baby brother coming, how do you feel? When someone says, how do you feel? Children have been really coached and socialized to use a feelings word. But then when I probe a little bit deeper, it isn't clear to me that children have a depth of understanding in context of what they feel. So that's missing a bit. And that's why I say families and communities can play a big role in really socializing these things in real life. The other trend that I'm seeing that is the biggest concern I have is that there is a real um, deficit I think in empathy development for children and adults. And this is something that I think we really need to slow down and put a bit more thought into what our kids need from us to be sure that their empathy development is expansive. Let's drill into that a little bit more and unpack that. First of all, how do you define empathy? It's a great question. A lot of people hear the word and they think I mean compassion or kindness. What I mean by empathy is a much more foundational thing. Empathy means I know what my internal states are. If I'm in conversation with you, I know what I feel. I know what I'm thinking. I know what my beliefs are that are shaping these things, for example. And I know that you have internal states that are separate from mine. In being able to identify those two things, it puts me in a position to essentially believe you when you tell me you um, feel a certain way or think a certain way. I can see us as sort of being separate human entities. What that means then, what that translates into is once you have that established, then we're able to do the things behaviorally that most people think of when they think of empathy. 
But the foundational part about really being able to separate out, how do I feel and what do I think? How do you feel and what do you think? Is actually the most important part for building foundational things for future change makers, like uh, being able to take risks, feeling psychologically safe in groups, and being able to achieve true relational equity, being courageous about examining your bias and power dynamics in relationships. Empathy is actually the cornerstone of those things. What I think we've started socializing people to do in this fast-paced world is to skip over the actual nut of empathy and sort of perform compassion and kindness. Someone says a feeling to you, and we in a very robotic way are like, you feel sad. I hear that you feel sad because. And that is sometimes the behavioral result of empathy, but standing on its own, it's pretty empty. Uh, empty. That's a really important point that you just made, because I think a lot of people who are listening or watching this interview might fall into that category that in the spirit of trying to be helpful, provide solutions, they may assume things that are not necessarily true. So how does a parent avoid that trap? It's a great question, because again, I know this is all in the popular discourse. I know that I'm saying something that's going to sound really like uh, different or, or bold. There's a couple of ways to disrupt that. One is to take a relational stance, which is what we were talking about earlier, that you're not there to coach. You're not there. You're, you know, we like to say parents are their kid's first teacher. And that's true, except you can't get too rigid about that role. What you are is something no one else is. You're a parent. And that's a relationship. And if you can start adopting that stance and trying to let the bug in your ear that says you have to do it a certain way fall away, you might be better positioned to look at your child, all of two years old, all of 13, which can seem very confusing sometimes to parents, as a whole human with thoughts, beliefs, awareness, motivations, and have a stance of wonder. Everybody says they're anxious these days. And what anxiety is, is when you're thinking, your problem solving gets trapped inside your own brain. And you think the answer is in there somewhere. It's a very constrained, very rigid approach to problem solving. If instead you have an attitude of wonder, the unknown isn't scary. It is just unknown. Sometimes it's not great, the future. Sometimes it's exciting. And we just don't know. Wonder lets us expand our thinking. Wonder is also the thing that helps position you for empathy. Because you approach the conversation from a not knowing stance, but also not helplessly. I wonder what you're feeling about this. Tell me. I wonder what you want. But the thing is, you have to believe your child, even if it sounds crazy, even if what they've said, I just really want to wear, you know, uh, I want to wear a mini dress to school and it's the middle of winter. And if you really assess your own internal stage, which includes things like values, if this is reasonable with your own values and your child is saying she wants it, you, you nurture a bond by saying, I believe you. Let's, see, let's test drive this one. Let's see how it goes. 
And then through those experiences, now you have fodder to reflect on together. How did that go? What do you think about it? How did it make you feel? Now there's all this internal state dialogue to be had. So it's so much more than just reflecting back what you heard. It's this deeper level of bond that includes trust in their voice, believing what they have to say, and in general, approaching the world in this curious way that lets you evolve your own internal state dialogue. When we talk about social emotional learning, we're talking about a lot of parents who've been helicopter parents. We're talking about the current global epidemic of youth mental health, social media, and a whole confluence of factors that are contributing to either the increased need for this approach to be used and also the complexity of potentially practicing it on a consistent basis. How can a parent sort through this maze? So this is a really big question. What I can say briefly today is that parents aren't getting it wrong. I think that there's a lot of stuff out there that makes parents feel like if I do it this way, I'll be this. And if I do it this way, it's too much this. And there is a wonderfully technical term in the developmental science literature. It's called good enough parenting. And what we mean by that is that parenting only explains 30% of children's behavioral and developmental outcomes. Now that's a meaningful chunk. Not a lot of things explain quite that much. So parents matter, but there is a plateau in terms of how much our good intentions can shape our children. So I want people to start their day with some perspective. There's a lot of like well-intentioned, loving, kind of mediocre parents out there at the standard of the sort of big parenting movements, right? That's what I mean by mediocre. They're not doing all the things all the time. And they're going to raise wonderful children. And they're not going to be any less wonderful than the parent who has read every parenting book out there. There's a lot on our shoulders. There are a lot of big world events taking place all at the same time. We're having a lot of existential crises. But the relationship development that our kids most need from us, the spaciousness to wonder and be empathetic towards one another, is constrained by the feeling that everything is literally on our shoulders to get it right. So to the extent that we can, there's a bit of surrendering that needs to happen to the world around us, to the knowledge that we are not going to be the only influences on our children. And I, I really invest in that thinking daily. My child, my children, they're going to be out in the world where, and I'm not there with them. I can't control what they say, what they do, how they treat people. What I can do is be a role model of my own values. I can stay close to them and invest in relationships with them so that I'm in their head a little bit when they're out there in the world. And I can be a thought partner with them when they want to reflect on choices that they've made. And so I go hard on all of those things instead of thinking to myself, how do I buffer them all the time against the impacts that this world is surely going to bring? Dr. Bachnick, any final thoughts on how parents can embrace, practice, and sustain social-emotional learning in their homes with their children? 
Start with family values. Get down to brass tacks. What do you actually care about? And from there, what social and emotional capacities need to expand in order to make sure that your child is being mentored within that set of values. That's it. What matters to us and how are we all manifesting what matters out in the world? Dr. Botnick, thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise with us today. Thank you for having me. There's nothing I love talking about more. Dr. Erica Bocknick is a university professor, practicing therapist, researcher, and mother of three children under the age of 12. That is all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Leanne Castellino. Hope you'll join us next time. Sign up for Leanne's parenting newsletter and so much more at whereparentstalk.com. This is Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region.